Morning, Glory America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. It's Hugh Hewitt. That music means I am departing from coverage of the Republican National Convention for the first time this week to bring you the Hillsdale Dialogue. And I do so because last week when we skipped the Hillsdale Dialogue, my email box almost collapsed with angry listeners who they didn't care what happened. They want their Hillsdale Dialogue. I tell you to go to hillsdale.edu when they've got something going on. They can't be here. But, Dr. Arn, you put me in a bad situation last week. So you brought along Dr. Ken Calvert this morning, Rothawk, that he is from Miami of Ohio, to protect yourself from the wrath of my listeners when you, <laughs> when you bolted on us last week. They were mad. Well, we were opening school. So I was protecting myself from the wrath of the governor of Michigan. Well, they think of themselves as your school as well. The That's Hillsdale. Right. They, That's right. And so, how did the opening of Hillsdale go? By the way. Well, we're amidst it, and uh, it's uh, it's 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 always intense this time of year. Everybody's glad to be back. Never so much as this year. Mm. This year, every time you walk past the student, they grin, and a group of them. I, I walked past the other, and a group of them stood up and gave me a standing ovation. Because I asked them back to campus. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Can I come up there and walk past a few people? Maybe they'll mistake. I'll wear a beard or something. <laughs> Dr. Calvert, are you happy to be back teaching? I am thrilled. Never never prouder to be part of Hillsdale College. It's, it's amazing. It, it's good that you're back, but I must say, it is a tough week to follow. The, uh, the Republicans had a uh, boffo week. I played the first two hours. <laughs> Our friend Tom Cotton hit a home run last night. The president did well. But I am talking about, generally speaking, the country's in an upheaval, and we're talking about Carthage. Now, the Steelers fans think that's what you hurt when you have your knee go out on you in professional (laughs) football. But we're talking about Carthage. There are lessons to be learned, though, which is great powers don't stay great, Dr. Calvert, right? They they can fall. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, Carthage, established around 800 B.C., was destroyed uh, through the three Punic Wars, and uh, young Scipio Emilianus knew that and cried at the destruction of Carthage, even though it had been their enemy for years. And, but he knew that uh, the life of a culture was not a given. It can, it can be destroyed. Uh, we need we need to be very cognizant of that, absolutely. Uh, Dr. Ern, I, I think most Americans who have seen Patton We'll know that during the North African campaign, they have a scene in that movie where he stops at some ruins and he imagines himself having been a part of that. He believed in reincarnation. And that's actually a legit uh, story about Patton. But uh, not a lot of Americans knew what he was referring to. I'm not sure when I I may have learned from Stephen Pressfield, the author about Carthage. When did you learn about Carthage and about these three Punic Wars, which Dr. Calvert just referred to? Uh, well, you know, if you so if you study political philosophy in graduate school, you learn about Rome, and you can't learn learn about Rome without learning about Carthage. And Carthage is uh, the final expression of a great civilization that grew up on the coast of Palestine yeah. and dominated for a long time. And when Jesus says uh, "Woe to Tyre and Sidon," those are the big cities of of uh, Phoenicia. And uh, and they had conflict with the Greeks, and they had conflict with the Persians forever and ever. And they started this colony over in the west side of the Mediterranean, sticking up into the Mediterranean towards Sicily. And that became the thing of the longest life and thriving. Carthage was a great city for several hundred years. 
We're talking, Dr. Calvert, about almost 3,000 years ago, correct? Yeah, 3,000 years ago and, you know, absolutely central to, as Dr. Arn mentioned, to the rise of Rome and the Roman Republic. Carthage was uh, really the major empire in the Western Mediterranean. And as the Republic rose to power, it had lots of uh, competitors, uh, the Gauls, the Greeks, the Samnites, various tribes and groups. And But Carthage was really the main power against which uh, the Republic had to contend. And frankly, um, you know, there was, it was, we look back at it and we think, oh, you know, the Romans were so successful. But, you know, honestly, there was no given that the Roman Republic would survive against Carthage. Uh, I want to I stress for a moment the nature of the regime in Carthage. How did they govern themselves prior to the endless war with Rome? Little, um, little examples uh, or little statements that are made. Aristotle uh, talks about the Carthaginians. And it, it seems to be a republic similar to Rome, except that Rome had uh, an aristocracy and um, the Carthaginians had something of an oligarchy, uh, a merchant oligarchy that, that controlled much of what went on in Carthage. It did not have the kind of stability that Rome had, particularly because it did not build in the Carthaginian people a kind of pride and a sense of liberty and freedom that you find uh, within the Roman Republic. But it, it was a kind of republic, and, and Aristotle uh, does point to that. Dr. Arnon, we've been talking about the Greeks for a long time. In this series of Hillsdale Dialogues, we're doing the history of the West. How did we get from there, Moses, to here, Trump, you know, everything in between? And my question to you is, when you, when you look at Carthage, you see more of Athens or more of Sparta as we discussed them the last few weeks? Uh, well, much more of Athens. Uh... Carthage is different, right? I mean, first of all, if you if you want to get a picture, and we, we can't be sure the picture is true, of life in Carthage, then Flaubert wrote a novel called Salambo. And Salambo is a princess in, in Carthage. And Carthage is surrounded by the mercenaries. That was the big thing about Carthage. They didn't really have any soldiers. They had sailors among their citizens. And so when they got in a war, they had to go hire a bunch of people. And the, and the mercenaries besieged the city. And uh, they're starving, and of course they start sacrificing their children, which is one of the things they did. Uh, and uh, they eventually sacrifice this princess, Salambo. And uh, the lead figure in it is a man named Hamilcar Barca, who is the founder of the Barca line. And of course Hannibal, the greatest of that line, was Hannibal Barca. And uh, so you can see the politics of it. You know, and I, as I say, we, it, it's more probably, Ken knows more about this than I do. It's probably more than we know about the details of Carthaginian's life. But it makes a tremendous picture. And, uh, and they were sort of cultured and civilized and traders and movers about the world with an empire like the Athenians. And also they were barbarians or savages in some important ways, too. Uh, Dr. Calver, before we go to break, uh, Larry touched on the most important one. They, they believed in human sacrifice. It was, uh, uh, what god did they worship? Well, there were two main gods. One was Melkart, uh, whose name, Melkart, means king of the city. And his, his main uh, uh, sacred spot was in the old city of Tyre. 
And so wherever the Carthaginians went, uh, whether it was in North Africa or Spain or whatever, uh, wherever the Phoenicians went, excuse me, they would establish a cult of Melkart. And then they also worshipped Baal. And um, the, the infant sacrifice, particularly of boys, uh, we have lots and lots of evidence of that. Um, and they, they liked to uh, sacrifice infant boys who were perfect in their physical nature, who actually were sons of the higher level um, uh, families within the Phoenician culture. It was, it was considered to be a high and honorable sacrifice. Um, none of the cultures around them, the Hebrews, the Greeks, the Romans, uh, of course, thought that the Phoenicians uh, were anything but barbarian because of this. Well, a good, a good jumping off point. There is a deep evil at the center of the Carthaginian Empire that comes out in the works of literature that we have about it. And uh, human sacrifice wasn't only a Carthaginian practice, was it, Dr. Calvert, but it was primarily theirs? Well, cultures that we're most interested in around the Mediterranean, human sacrifice was not common. Uh, you know, you find examples uh, in the Hebrews, uh, among the Hebrews, that they do not believe in, in human sacrifice. And, um, you know, when it does happen, it is, it is not considered to be the norm. Um, you find among the Greeks uh, in Homer um, a real anti, you know, negative attitude towards human sacrifice. So it's, you, you have examples of it that are outside the norm within those cultures, uh, but it's not considered to be a good. When we come back, we will talk about the rise of this empire, and at the same time, across the, the sea, growing up at the same time, we will see how the uh, Phoenician, I mean the Carthaginians, are being matched by a young upstart republic that came into being about 500 years before the birth of Christ. The Roman Republic gets going, and eventually they, they tangle and the story of what happened is the story of this Hillsdale Dialogue. All things Hillsdale are at hillsdale.edu. Don't go anywhere. Even if you want to go watch the highlights of last night, hold off. Learn something first, and then we'll be back on the Hillsdale Dialogue on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. Hugh Hewitt, the Hillsdale Dialogue, even in this week of Republican Convention, is underway. Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, doctor and professor Ken Calvert, who's been teaching the undergraduates at, at Hillsdale for a quarter century, join me as we continue our march from through the Western history. How do we go from there to here? And Carthage comes up uh, for a lot of reasons, primarily because it is the antagonist of the Roman Republic, which gets us from the Greek city-states to uh, the great British Empire. Uh, tell, tell us, Dr. Calvert, about, I mean, why did they start fighting? The Roman Republic doesn't have to start a war, or Carthage doesn't have to start a war. Why, there were three of them. Why did they start fighting? Well, remember that uh, the Roman Republic is growing on the Italian peninsula um, from 509 to about, uh, what, 266 B.C., and as they grow, as they um, uh, expand their influence and their power on the Italian peninsula, the Carthaginians are definitely watching this situation because the Carthaginians, really, they are the greatest power in the Western Mediterranean, and they're concerned. Uh, the Romans have great agriculture. Um, they are beginning to participate in trade, and so they are a competitor. Uh, the Carthaginians, for most of the early early period were enemies with the Greeks. There are Greek city-states all over southern Italy and, of course, uh, in Sicily at the uh, city of Syracuse. 
but uh, the the Carthaginians take take notice of this rising power, and at one point they say, "Okay, uh, you can have the Italian Peninsula, but go no further." And um, Livy tells us about this, Polybius, that the uh, the Romans do end up moving on to the island of Sicily in order to, uh, as they say, defend some some friends and some allies there. But uh, whether or not the Romans did this, you know, uh, on purpose or this really was a defensive war, that's a great debate. But in the end, what you have are the Romans moving on to the island of Sicily, and that was the, the red line for the, the Carthaginians, the line you do not cross. The provocation. Yeah. And yeah, it, it, right. it's interesting, Dr. Arndt, Sicily played such a role in the Greek-Sparta War as well. And yes. people look at it, and, they, and, it, and in World War II, it never really is a neutral ground. It can't be, given its, its proximity to everywhere. If you look at the geography, people should picture in their mind to go look at a map of the Mediterranean. It's a, it's a lozenge, wider than it is tall. And it's a big sea, though, and especially with the, with the kind of ships they had in those days, it's very big. But it narrows about two-thirds of the way across. Italy sticks down from the north, and Tunisia, where Carthage is, sticks, sticks up from the south. And then there's uh, uh, Cyprus, and there's Malta. And that means that if you're, you know, if you're navigating around the Mediterranean, you can have a base to refuel and refit and all that stuff pretty close to the scenes of action. And so the Carthaginians and the Romans, the way I imagine it is that, you know, they're really different people. It's kind of like, why do we fight with the Chinese? Well, there's a qualitative difference between us, but just start with the fact that there's a difference. And now we catch sight of each other. <laughs> so, so the next thing you know, they're both making plans. And uh, for Rome, that's a that's a challenge. See, go, go zoom back to Alexander, where whom we studied, right? He destroyed Tyre and Sidon, which is over there on the on the far east coast of the Mediterranean, and he could get there by land. To get to Carthage, he would have had to turn the circle around the south, southern border of the Mediterranean, go two thirds of the way across it. He never did that, right? Carthage was safe from him because it, the way to get there from the centers of population is on the sea. And so Rome became a sea power. And, you know, something part of Sparta struggled to do, and Athens did. And so now they're the dominant land power and they're the dominant sea power. And that does mean sooner or later death to Sparta, I mean, sorry, death to Carthage, unless Carthage can defeat them. And so it becomes a naval struggle. I, I'm curious, Dr. Calvert, what did they fight? In? It, it, we got a, a minute. What kind of boat did they use? What was the, the, the standard battleship? Uh, the triremes um, that really were invented more by the Greeks um, and uh, other ships, both larger and smaller. And what the Romans did was, because the Romans were not a great sea power, particularly in the first Punic War and then moving into the second Punic War, they developed a naval force. Um, particularly, they developed this thing called the corvus, which was a which was a plank with a with a with a, with a nail on the end of it, uh, actually larger than the nail, which they would fix in the uh, deck, the upper deck of, of their enemy, and and send their troops across. And board. We'll talk about that when we return to the Hillsdale Dialogue. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue this week, it's about 3,000 years ago, the Carthaginian Roman Republic struggle, but it is relevant to today because 
as we went to break, Dr. Calvert talked about a technological innovation at sea. And uh, darned if it didn't give the Romans an edge, the Corvus. Uh, pick up, Dr. Calvert, with what that meant and how it changed the battle in the First Punic War. What it meant was that the Romans could play to their strength, which was uh, on the land, and send basically what we would call Marines or uh, uh, soldiers across that plank onto the enemy ship. And rather than sink the ship or destroy it, they could capture it and make it theirs and therefore expand their own naval power by capturing the enemy's ships. Now, it's interesting, Dr. Arn. Uh, I really do want people to understand nothing is new in the world, although it, ta- it appears to be. Republics rise, republic fall, wars are fought, and technology changes. And if you don't adapt, you lose. Is that fair? Oh, yeah. Well, it just, if you look at the, uh, at the first half of the Second World War, there was a huge contest over the Mediterranean. And the tide of the war turned by victories in North Africa. And some of those were right on the spot, as we talk about Patton being there, right on the spot of Carthage. And whether you could get ships through the Mediterranean or not was extremely consequential to Britain. And for the first half of the war, they couldn't because it's narrow between Italy and, and, uh, and, and Tunisia or Carthage. And so planes, German planes, could cover it and sink ships going through. And that meant to resupply Montgomery, they had to go all the way around the Horn of Africa. It's really remarkable that if one just studied Sicily, you would study the history of the world, actually. Uh, Dr. Calvert, there are three Punic Wars. Can you just give the bones of the of the chronology and let's go through them? Because it's not one of those things where it, it went on for endless years. It starts, it stops, it starts, it stops, it starts, it ends. Right. First Punic War really was... Uh... Uh, uh, a Roman victory. Uh, it, it took uh, 20 years to fight, but finally the Romans brought it to uh, a conclusion. And they, they controlled Sicily, they controlled Sardinia, Corsica, they controlled a lot of the major um, islands in the Mediterranean, as Dr. Arne had been mentioning, how strategic all of this is. Now, the Second Punic War really took off because the Barcas reestablished themselves in Spain. The Carthaginians had already had a presence in Spain, um, but Hasdrubal, um, Hannibal, uh, and Hasdrubal and his sons really established a a powerful base, a new base in Spain um, with the intention uh, of attacking uh, the, uh, the Romans, of destroying the Romans. We're told that Hannibal was, as a child, um, dedicated to the destruction of the Roman Republic. And so, you know, his father, Hanno, had made him really kneel before uh, an altar of Melkart uh, to, to dedicate himself to the destruction of the Republic. So the, the major war really was the Second Punic War, 218 to 201, and then the final Punic War, the third Punic War, 149 to 146, that was really not much of a war at all. That was the Romans deciding that they were going to destroy this, this what they considered to be a cancer. Well, let's focus on the second then, and it's 218 to 201. So it's 200 years before the birth of Christ. I, I am curious if their culture is a martial culture like Sparta, uh, uh, Dr. Calvert. Did they... 
You mentioned Hannibal was put before the altar of a pagan god and told he had to beat the Roman Republic. Did they train the way the Spartans did, or was there a separate military caste and the rest of the country went about trading and getting rich? Right. Uh, They were not a martial culture like the Spartans, really, not at all. Um, They were more of an agricultural community and trading community. That was where they had their great focus. Um, Those who were great men had land, uh, were involved on the sea. And as Dr. Arne mentioned, their military forces, especially their land forces, were mercenaries. And so they had particularly Numidians, uh, but also uh, Iberians out of Spain and uh, Gaelic forces that they would pay to fight on their behalf. Um, The Carthaginian citizens were primarily naval. They would they would uh, be the ones on the ships um, because they were traders as well. Now, Dr. Arne, I got a pretty good image of Hannibal because he is heavily featured in Roman history for a very good reason. But what, what do you think of the guy? Well, you know, he was meaner than he could be. <laughs> he's, yeah. very, he's, he's brilliant. He's aggressive. My, now, mark the fact, by the way, that war doesn't fit into neat patterns ever. The Second Punic War is chiefly a land war. And the reason is those Marcas, they were really clever, and they go, you know, they walk out of Carthage and they travel west, and they go across the Straits of Gibraltar, which are narrow, and they take Spain. And that puts them to the west of the Roman Empire. But to get there, because there's mountains in the way, right? So they use Spain as a base. Uh, Hannibal uses Spain as a base, and he invades Italy proper, and and you know, it, it, uh, Ken should tell you about it. But at the Battle of Cannae, they he, he killed you know he just simply destroyed a major Roman army, and he's just nothing but trouble. And so the Romans, so first of all, now he's the dominant thing on land. They can't really go directly against him, and he's in Italy for goodness sake, heck and gone from Carthage. And he's not really resupplied by sea, mostly. He, he, he gets it from the locals, and he raises up rebellions against Rome. And then he gets beat two ways. Uh, Fabius, uh, you know, uh, 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 the delayer, what he does is cut off supplies to Hannibal. So Hannibal is reduced in Italy. He, can't, he has to struggle to keep his army together and fed. But then... Scipio, one of the greatest of all the Romans, he goes and takes Spain. So that's a step to do back to Carthage and the Barcas, what the Barcas had done to Italy. Once they get Spain, they're on their way to Carthage proper. I got to ask Dr. Calvert about Hannibal and the elephants. 2,000 years later, roughly, Napoleon's going to cross those Alps as well. And it remains the first time Hannibal comes over. And every schoolboy and schoolgirl ought to know this, but it is a remarkable feat of logistics. What did he do? How did he do it? He marched across um, uh, all, you know, Spain, uh, southern Gaul, uh, and across the Alps into northern Italy. And as Dr. Arndt said, Hannibal is, is really a figure to be dealt with. He is an amazing figure and uh, particularly focused. So at the beginning of this war, he has a, a strong supply line. Now, what he, you know, what the, the problem is that it stretches out over thousands of miles across all that territory we've just talked about. And he's got to find his way up through the Alps. And there are a number of different, you know, valleys that he could go through. But he goes through um, 
uh, one in particular, and by the way, we do know it's the Col de la Traverse, Traversette that we do know he went through there because recently um, uh, some biologists have studied the, the land and the lakes in that area and have found a particularly heavy dose of, well, you know, uh, horse dung. And uh, what they have decided is that they have found, they have decided which of the valleys he walked through huh. or marched through and into northern Italy. Now, the thing is that by the time he gets there, he starts with about 100,000 men. By the time he gets there, he's down to about half of what he started with. And what he needed were new allies. And he made allies among the Gauls in northern Italy and among the Greeks down in southern Italy. And he had the Romans surrounded. Now, now Dr. Calvert, has, has any American force ever been as annihilated as the Romans were at Cannae? I mean, is there any parallel that would be readily accessible? It's there, a devastating blow. Yeah, there really isn't. You know, as Dr. Arn mentioned, we're, we're thinking uh, somewhere around 50,000 Romans uh, were killed. And many of, the sen- many of them were senators. There, were, there was, you know, a, a large portion of the upper class of, of the Roman Republic that was destroyed at Cannae. There's been really nothing like it. There, there have been many, many generals who have attempted to, to do this. You know, Robert E. Lee tried. Uh, you know, various uh, uh, Union generals tried a canny against the Confederacy. Uh, in modern warfare, uh, you have this obsession with trying to surround the enemy and destroy them. A couple of times in, in World War II, you had this. Particularly in modern warfare, Norman Schwarzkopf uh, attempted to do that in, uh, in the Gulf War and uh, came very close uh, to, to a canny. So it's something that many, many generals have wanted to replicate. Oh, the, the filet pocket. Uh, it's Dr. Arn's uh, specialty, but it must have driven Churchill crazy, Dr. Arn, to let the Germans get away. Yeah, and uh, see, here's a, a funny thing. Churchill, you know, was accused, by the way, of copying Hannibal with his southern and Italian strategy in the second half of the Second World War, he didn't really think they could go across the Alps, but he did entertain the idea that they could go through the Ljubljana Pass up to up to Vienna, and that way he could get farther east and stop the Soviet future Soviet Empire from getting to be so big. And he he of course he he loved Hannibal and he knew all about him, and he he too would very much like to take a have a canny. <laughs> every, every every if you're a general or a commander, everybody wants one. Well, many people do get, when we come back, Azama. Don't go anywhere, America, because eventually they send Scipio over to Tunisia, and it does not end well for the Carthaginians. If you've ever heard the story of sowing salt in the field, this is where it comes from. I'll be right back with the Hillsdale Dialogue. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Carthaginians and the Romans cannot be friends. And eventually Scipio goes over, and what's he do? Uh, and, and what does Cato the Elder then demand every Roman do, uh, Dr. Calvert? Well, so uh, Scipio Africanus, the older uh, Scipio, first of all, as Dr. Arn mentioned, he, he takes Spain. And that was brilliant because it knocks out the, uh, the, the Barkid base of operation. Then he goes to Sicily and begins to put together a military force under the approval of the, of the Roman Senate uh, against North Africa. And when he moves into North Africa, he takes with him 14,000 survivors of Cannae. 
So his force is you know, somewhere around 50,000, but 14,000 of those men are men who survived at Cannae. And actually, the Romans had not allowed them to come home because they were seen as failures. And so these guys, who we, we often call the ghosts of Cannae, uh, were able to kind of recover their sense of pride, recover the confidence of the Romans by taking part in the Battle of Zama in 202. And the Battle of Zama was very closely fought. Uh, Hannibal had to race home, get home to North Africa to take on this, this invasion of Scipio Africanus. Um, and what you have here is finally the Carthaginian citizens coming out into the field of battle. And though they were not used to having to fight on land, they were fierce and ferocious because they were defending their territory. But in the end, um, Scipio is dominant and defeats them. Now, it's, it's years later um, that uh, uh, Scipio Aemilianus, who is the adopted grandson of Scipio Africanus, was sent in the Third Punic War to finally put an end to Carthage, which he did. Yeah. And he did so because for 50 years, Cato the Elder, I, everybody should know this story, Dr. Arn. Everybody should know that if you really have resolution, you've got to take a page from Cato the Elder and end every speech the same way. I, you probably do it at Hillsdale. Carthage Delinda asked, and if he gave a, a talk on sanitation in Rome, he would end the speech in the Senate with, Carthage must be destroyed. <laughs> and, you know, the Carthaginians, when they heard that, they must have been a little fearful. <laughs> but we remember that, and I, I love it because, you know, we ought to tell Cotton, our buddy Senator Cotton, that, that you know, he's got 50 years ahead of him in public life. He's got to figure out what to say. He doesn't want to say Beijing must be destroyed. But if you're in a, in a centuries-long confrontation with another global power, you have to stay focused, right? Yeah, I think the enemy over there is a certain political party. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Calvert, I want to close. Do the, uh, do the Hillsdale students enjoy Polybius? I mean, do they enjoy studying Carthage? They are a remarkable group of people. They, they love this stuff. They eat it up. Um, I had a course on the Roman Republic uh, last spring, um, I had 40 kids in there, and they were just loving it. And unfortunately, the COVID thing shut us down. And I would send out my uh, my films of my lectures, and I'd get you know dozens and dozens of emails with new questions and new ideas and new thoughts. They love Polybius. They love this classical history because they know uh, the value of it. Yeah. Uh, Doctor, let, let's, what is the value of that? And, and all of this is at hillsdale.edu. All things Hillsdale are there. All of our previous Hillsdale dialogues, including this series on how did we get here, uh, is at hughforhillsdale.com. But what is the enduring lesson of this, or lessons? Well, it's like uh, Aristotle says there's a great advantage to live in a city where you can have close friendships. Well, this is like that, because these powers, right, Athens and Sparta are a contrast. Rome and the Greeks are a contrast. Carthage and Rome are a contrast, and they have similarities and differences. And when you understand the mixture of those things, you can see the human possibilities. And they're, they're all, you know, the, the, the history of the Punic Wars has not been repeated in, in uh, history, but who is it that says somebody, you know, somebody famous said, uh, 
history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I, I like to remind people that uh, when we do this, we are we are advantaged by what Dr. Arn said in the first of our lectures or our conversation. We know the whole story when you study history. We don't know what's going to happen between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party. We don't know. Uh, we have no way of knowing. But we can study an entire history of of the Peloponnesian War or of the Carthage and Roman War. And that's why we do it. Or am I wrong, Dr. Art? Yeah, no, that's, you can't, history, so first of all, history, as, as regards human affairs, it's the one world of certainty. This alone is denied even to God, writes Aristotle, repeated by Thomas Aquinas, to make what has been not to have been. And so that's why we're always questing. That's why it's, uh, it's such great news that they found all this horse manure in the passes between uh, uh, through the Alps into northern Italy. That, oh, yeah, another confirmation, right? And so, that, you know, we want to know what happened. And since these particular things, you know, Rome is the greatest of the empires, if it's not Persia, probably. And, and, uh, uh, and so its main enemy, because, you know, Rome also peaked with the Third Punic War. That was it. We come back next week. What happened to the Republic after that? Dr. Ron, Ken Calvert, thank you. The Hillsdale Dialogue returns next week. <laughs>